Hi, and thanks for listening to the Funnel Side Chats podcast. This series features Nadim Hossein, the founder and CEO of Bright Funnel, in conversation with marketing thought leaders. Subscribe and tune in to hear what the future of B2B marketing looks like from different perspectives and get an up close and personal look into some of today's most innovative and creative minds. We would love for you to tweet along with us. You can find us on Twitter at Bright Funnel and at Nadim Hossein. So without further ado, I'll kick it over to Nadim. Hello, everyone. This is Nadeem Hussain, co-founder and CEO of Bright Funnel. Uh, I'm delighted to be here for another one of our Funnel Side Chats uh, with John Miller, who is uh, CEO of Engageo and co-founder of Marketo. Uh, I'll let him introduce himself as well. How's it going? Yeah, good? it's good, good to be on the podcast. So yeah, my, um, my background has been in marketing technology for pretty much my whole career. Uh, started out at a company called Exchange, which is the leading marketing technology of the mid-90s. Uh, went from there to Epiphany, where I was the first product manager, leading marketing technology of the internet bubble. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, when we sold Epiphany in 2005, that's when Phil Fernandez and I hooked up to start Marketo, arguably leading marketing technology of the last 10 years. Uh-huh. And yeah, now my most recent thing is Engageo. Wonderful. And so, what, so let's start right after college. It was, so your first job was that was in marketing technology, the, the first company you mentioned? Sort of. So yeah. the, I mean, the, the, the short story is this book called The One to One Future. You've probably yeah. seen it. That came out in 1993. Yeah. Uh, I graduated college in 94. So it was kind of very, very much as I was coming out and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And it really inspired me. This, this idea of using data and analytics to make, to bring kind of 1800s corner store level personalization mm-hmm. to, you know, to the masses, you know, kind of industrial level, you know, economies of scale. Uh, and what I was so attracted about that was it's about using math and science in business. Mm-hmm. You know, I was grad- graduating college in 94 with a degree in physics and decided I wanted kind of to be in the business world or at least give it a try. So it just kind of made sense. I was naturally drawn towards anything where I could kind of have that quantitative quantitative element. So this whole idea of one-to-one marketing was really appealing to me. I, I ended up at a consulting firm called Exchange Partners that mm-hmm. was sort of specializing in how to use data to make customer decisions. And Exchange Partners bought a technology company uh, that we spun off as Exchange Applications that ultimately became Exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they went public. Uh, as a marketing technology. So I kind of had that association. And then when I was uh, graduating from business school, then I kind of, it it made natural sense for me to end up at Epiphany. Uh, Exchange was Epiphany's largest competitor at the time. So kind of made my way into marketing technology by way of this whole idea of the one-to-one future. And when you, when you came out of business school, was it, was it 99 or? Yep. Right, right so, at the peak of the bubble. So, so crazy times. Um, so, I, I was I went to college four years after you. So, I, I missed everything by a couple of years. Yeah. But I, I, I landed in SF just at the the end of the bubble in two thousand. But I know ninety nine was crazy. Uh, and so, of all the things you could have done, um, you know, besides Epiphany being a, a space you knew about, you know, why join that company? And, and tell me about how big were they, and you know, what was it like back then? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I. It sort of it took a little while for me to realize that I wanted to be in a software business, uh, you know. When and ultimately, 
you know, because what I'd really been driven by was just use data to make better decisions. And I was also attracted to companies like Capital One, right, sure. which use data to make better decisions, but more for kind of, you know, driving credit. Um, I was really drawn to Epiphany because they were making software that enabled that process kind of at greater scale. Um, now, you know, I had no background in technology, though. You know, and I interviewed at Siebel, didn't get a job. You know, I interviewed at probably a bunch of software companies and didn't get a job. It was just really kind of a lucky, court, you know, co fortunate coincidence that they were entering this marketing technology category right around the same time when I was, um, you know, w where I'd had the background from exchange, where I kind of was, was looking. The other benefit I had was that there was a guy from the class of 98 before me who was there uh, and somebody who I really had respected. And, and who, who I'd met before. And so I kind of had the connection into it through that. So I actually did the same thing he did. And I started working there while still finishing up the second year of school. Got it. Uh, so I started working in January of uh, 99, kind of 10, 15 hours a week, yeah. um, which was a great move because that was, uh, I got my, my stock price uh, locked in and my vesting yeah. locked in. Even though I was only working 15 hours a Don't week. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I joined, there were about 25 or 30 people. I was the first product manager. They had just hired a star CEO, a guy named Roger Saboni, uh, who had been previously managing 70,000 people you know, at KPMG. You know, they'd gotten big funding from Kleiner Perkins. So they were definitely kind of, quote, unquote, a, a hot company. Sure. Uh, by the time I started full time in September, I think there were like already 150 people or something like that. Wow. You know, so kind of that you know, kind of crazy hyper growth period. And the IPO was later that year in 99. Uh, so if I'm not mistaken, that, that GSB class of 99 was, was an infamous one because of how, how much class that, that you guys skipped is, is what I've heard through the folklore. Is that, is that a true story? Or? Oh, I don't know if we were any worse than other classes. <laughs> um, I was a good student. You know, yeah. I, I went to my classes and got good grades. So I don't know, I don't know about other people. We had a fair number of people who dropped out. Mm. You, know, you know, kind of didn't come back after the summer because they started a business over the summer yeah. and decided to kind of, you know. Was, was that uh, Tim Chang's class? Uh, no, I don't think so. We, you know, we had, we had um, Stellan Dot was one. There were a few others. You know, and we have a lot of pretty pretty well-known venture capitalists from our class, sure. including Steve Anderson up in Seattle and um, Kevin Arfrissi at Excel, Ping Lee from Excel, uh, Chris Moore at Redpoint, many, many more. Right, so, so, you know, one question as people sometimes ask me as a fellow GSB grad at Stanford and, and an entrepreneur is, is did, did your MBA degree or experience benefit you Subsequently, you know, is this something you'd recommend someone else does? What did you get out of it? Um, the, I mean, I'll have the same answer a lot of people do. You know, the yeah. classes and what you learn, fine, whatever. You know, I mean, I think anytime you learn stuff, that's good. But are you going to learn more going to graduate school than you would just on the job? I don't know. But so whatever. So what, what you learn, all well and good. I think... The, the network and the contacts are valuable. There's no doubt about that. You know, I'm not exactly the world's greatest networker, you know, and so I probably did meet more people in more types of different, you know, positions than I would have had I kind of just been quote unquote working. To me, I think the most valuable thing about going to uh, business school is anytime you want to think about a career change. You know, I mean, it's hard to like pick up and like, oh, you know, I've been in healthcare and now I also know I want to be an investment banker. 
Sure. Uh, and I think that that people are are not very open about career changers. It's very hard, you know, in the open job market. But I think graduating from graduate school, it's kind of a unique time that uh, more doors are open to you. So I particularly recommend it if you're thinking about a career change. Got it. Got it. No, I think it's I think it's a good perspective. Um, and coming out of business school, so, so you went to Epiphany and, and had a good good run there. Why did you decide to, to, to sign up to be a founder with, with Phil when you guys started Marketo? Tell me about that yeah. story. Well, I, I, had, I, was, I wasn't the kid who grew up thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad was an attorney. My mom was a teacher. So, you know, I didn't have those kind of role models of like, oh, this is kind of what you do. But, uh, you know, when, when Epiphany got sold, uh, my wife was absolutely shocked that I didn't take the uh, the pack or didn't didn't take the role to stay on, yeah. you know, and keep working. Uh, and instead, I took the severance package, uh, you know, because her whole worldview also is like, oh yeah, you you work for the company. That's kind of yeah. what you do. Uh, so I had the severance package. I had you know so a little bit of small you know cash window, you know, uh, where I could kind of figure things out. And I was primarily looking at various VP marketing jobs, you know, kind of, you know, kind of small companies looking for their first, you know, first time VP marketing and lots of companies had pros and cons. Uh, and at the same time, I started talking to Phil a little bit, you know, about, you know, the, you know, there ought to be a company that leveraged software as a service to do better marketing technology. Same time, Phil was interviewing for CEO jobs at, you know, a variety of companies. And over the course of just a couple months, you know, ultimately, you know, I came to realize that starting Marketo was just frankly going to be the best job that I could find right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, in terms of the people I was going to work with, the commute, um, the opportunity, the category, you know, and the fact I was doing it with Phil uh, was risk reducing. You know, he was able to put a little bit of money in. Um, and I cared about those things at the time, you know, my wife was pregnant with our first kid. Yeah. I was paying the mortgage on our first house. It wasn't exactly like, you know, Oh great. Go do this really, really risky thing. But I'm very, I'm very thankful to Phil that, that, um, I was able to find a way to kind of make it work given my life circumstances because I was dealing with him. Yeah, that's, it's, it's fascinating. One of the things that I always remember about your story is I was in the same boat where, you know, I was talking about a session yesterday where my daughter's three and a half and the company's three and a half and people are like, wait, wait a second, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. So in your case, um, like, what was it about, you know, thinking about, about to, you know, you're about to be a dad, you're, you're going to have a family, and, and, but you're going to do a startup anyway. What, what did you, was it a rational decision? Was it just uh, an emotional one? Or how, how did you think about that? Or did you not think about the family aspect? Well, I mostly, you know, realized that just was thinking about what's, this is going to be the right, the best job. Yeah. What I didn't actually realize is I think you can't ever plan your life this way, but, you know, starting a company when you're having your first kid actually is a great time, you know, because when you're first starting a company out, you don't have any employees, you don't have one-on-ones, you don't have any meetings, you don't have any customers yet. Yeah. Um, you basically, all you have to do is like work. And that means you're eminently flexible. Yeah. <laughs> your timing, <laughs> yeah. you know, this. you can work from home. Yeah. Right. You know, you can work when you need to and you can not work when you need to do family things. So it was great. Actually, those first couple of months, you know, I'd go to Phil's house sometimes and we'd meet some stuff. But, but I was home for bath time every day. Um, it was actually, frankly, much harder later when my second child was born. And, um, quote, unquote, it was much more of a real thing. 
Yeah. And now you have all these like poles and responsibilities and you know, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. No, start, starting a company when you're having a kid is actually totally wrong. Totally reasonable. I, I used that story. When we talked in 2013, I used that story to convince my wife, by the way. So if she meets you, she may have some choice words. <laughs> no, it probably but, turned out to be true. No, it turned out know? to be great. I think, I think you're right with, we have a second now. It's obviously gets, gets harder. But, but it's, what I don't think people realize, especially dads, yeah. you know, is they always feel like, oh my gosh, I got to be so around and so present when the kid's born. And you know, that when your kid's born, like they don't do anything. Right. It's actually more important. Like, how are you going to think about being around a president when the kid's four or seven? Yeah. You know, and they need to go to baseball games. And, you know, that's actually, I think, much more important, much more important than when yeah. they're just a blob that sleeps. Yeah. The first, I, I would, yeah, the first six months, there's, uh, this is, uh, yeah, I didn't think I had a lot of value. <laughs> You're there for the wife, not the kid. Exactly. It's more about being, uh, you know, my, my view was it's more about being, can you be a better, a good husband, a good enough. Right. Good and when the second kid is born, you're all about the first kid. Exactly. Because mom's, mom's pretty focused on the second kid. Yeah. So yeah, there's probably a, a book or a blog post about <laughs> parent or, you know, being a good dad while being a founder. Um, not easy. Uh, so, so John, I want to ask you about Marketo. It's, it's clearly one of the most important companies in MarTech in the last 10, 20 years. So what was, what was that journey like in, in the beginning? Um, say what, once you had product market fit for, you know, marketing automation product, how did the market mature? What was your experience over time? Any kind of takeaways that you're now applying at, at Engage You? Well, different, different questions there. So you know, our first product at Marketo was a pay-per-click bid, optimiz- bid optimizer. Yeah. And we did not have product market fit on that. And I really got to sort of learn the lessons of kind of how painful that can be, uh, you know, kind of to having a product that's sort of only okay. Right. Uh, and the, fortunately, you know, when we sort of released the first version of the marketing automation product, um, we'd done, we, we built a good product, right? And, you know, it had, it had the benefit of being a, uh, a product that was serving a market that was somewhat already existing. We had the benefit of having, you know, Eloqua out there. You know, Eloqua had already helped to convince people of the need for marketing technology, like, like marketing automation, but you know, they had flaws as a company Mm -hmm. and their, you know, the product was complicated and kind of expensive. And so that was one of my lessons, which is it's always a really nice thing to, you know, enter a category that has some existing competition, Mm -hmm. uh, because then you're not defining the category by yourself, you know, and you can ride on that. Um, but competitors also aren't so big that they're unbeatable. Mm-hmm. You know, so finding finding the segments to me that was actually one of the most important things I was looking for, kind of when starting kind of my next company. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing at Marketo that I was you know as I look back at the the days, um, you know we we had our first head of sales, who was 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 a good hire, but uh, we weren't growing all that fast, and so Phil made the decision to. Um, Make a make a change, um, particularly because Bill Bench became available, and we'd actually had tried to hire Bill about a year and a half before, and Bill was like, "No, you're too small for me." But now, you know, Bill was ready. And, and how big were you this time? We weren't that much bigger, but we were, you know, on the second product, not the first product, mm-hmm. and you know, 30, 30 customers on the yeah. marketing automation product or something. And it was literally almost overnight where once Bill was there. But I like to say is like magically somehow my leads got better overnight, mm-hmm. you know, because now all of a sudden, you know, 
there was somebody on the sales side to catch the balls I was throwing. And so, so that's a that's a, a very topical thing. This marketing sales alignment and, and hand up. What was it about Bill and what he was doing at that stage that was so effective? He was just a deal execution machine. Like you know, I mean, hustler in all the good senses of the word. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he he got deals done. You know, uh, and he created a culture. You know, kind of that got deals done. You know, so I was, you know, turns out I was doing a pretty good job with our content and other things mm-hmm. of generating interest uh, and just needed somebody to kind of, you know, have the same urgency on the other side of sales, you know, to kind of take it. You know, and so from there, things actually, once Bill came on and we had the market automation product, you know, that was, that was early what, 2008. Got it, okay. Uh, Bill started in, in, in May of 2008. Now you recall November 2008, you know, it was when the financial crisis hit and it seemed like the whole world was going to fall apart, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it didn't hurt us that bad. Like we didn't really feel much. I mean, uh, and I think it's because we were so small that sort of global macro, you know, the, the, the forces that are just were driving our growth were just more important than any global macroeconomic thing because we were so tiny. Sure. So the only real impact for us was that um, our Christmas party was cookies in the office. You know, in 2008, uh, kind of saving money there. But yeah, no, then just 2009 hit, 2010. It was it was fairly just steady growth and execution. And you know, if you if you look at you know you know Marquette, I think I think in the S one the, the numbers are public from nine onwards. I think it's like four million in '09. So the the growth trajectory was pretty phenomenal as far as revenue growth as far as compared to any other SaaS companies. I mean, there's others that are higher, but it's pretty fast. What was, was it the category? Was it the, how much you spent? Was it, uh, you know, just being, buying the growth or what was it? What was the secret to that speed of that growth? Well, I would say, I think you need to, to get that kind of growth. You need multiple things to light up, you know, and any one of them, without any one of them, you, you probably don't achieve it. You know, first of all, you need a good category. And it's probably the most important. I mean, the reality is if your category is growing, you're going to grow even if you're screwing up. Yeah. You know, number two, it really helps to have a good product, you know, and it's funny. I mean, I, I, I always took every new employee we hired at Marketo to lunch up mm-hmm. until about 300 people. It's a lot of burritos. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one of the things I kind of asked people is like, all right, so now that you're here, what surprises you? What did you not know from the outside that now you know when you're on the inside? And probably the most common answer I got from people, especially people who had been in the industry for a while, is I'm really surprised by just how well the product works. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of SaaS companies out there where like the products just got some hair on it. You know, and like you can survive. I mean, you can make things work even when the product doesn't work perfectly. But if you got a product that just works, it helps because then people are happier. And then you get positive word of mouth and references and, Mm -hmm. you know, that whole thing. And then the third thing you need, so you've got the market, you've got the product, you also then need good sales and marketing execution, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think we were well known for having a very good marketing system and funnel. uh, And then we had good sales, you know, and I really do think all three of those are necessary to get the kind of hyper growth we saw. To have at the same time. And, you know, as you look at the, you know, Marketo IPO, obviously you were there for a little bit after that. As you look at MarTech in general now, it's by all measures expanded to be really, have a lot more players, be bigger. <clears throat> How do you look at the current landscape? Is that is that good? Is that bad? Um, are you surprised? 
you know, I mean, I think Scott Brinker has the smartest things to say on this topic. One of the things that he talks about is that Martech is actually the first major enterprise software company to grow up in the era of the cloud. You know, I mean, sales grew up with on-premise software. Finance grew up with on-premise software. You know, marketing came came to being, you know, with SaaS. And by the way, that's partly because, you know, marketing is a cost center for in a lot of people's brains. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't make a capex investment in a cost center. You know, you don't buy on-premise software. But marketers have big opex budgets. You know, which means marketing sort of perfectly suited. You know, for software. But because marketing is the first category that kind of grew up in the cloud, it just kind of makes sense that there's going to be this proliferation of companies because, um, you know, it makes it easier to build things and to try things and to integrate things, mm-hmm. you know. And so, there, yeah, so not surprising there's lots and lots of companies. I think that, and, and Scott also would agree with this, that there is some structure that starts to evolve in the category around kind of platforms and systems of record Hmm. and, you know, kind of ancillary solutions, uh, what he would call experiences or people might call workflow applications or something. Mm -hmm. And just like it makes sense to have only a few major operating systems that lots of people can, can, can work on, it makes sense that there'll be relatively few number of platform systems of record and then constant innovation and, and, uh, experimentation with kind of applications kind of, mm-hmm. you know, around the edge. Um, as a entrepreneur, I'm always thinking about how do I build a platform? Because that's just where the, ma- the value is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you already see that with, you know, solutions like salesforce.com kind of asking ISVs that integrate to them to pay a fairly hefty fee. You know, the, the, the platform owner has a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how do you build, you know, so how do we build platforms, you know, kind of for the future? Yeah, absolutely. And as you think about what you're doing now at Engageo, um, so what are you doing as a, as a second time founder, first time CEO that uh, you learn you're doing as a result of, of doing Marketo the first time around? Well, I alluded to some of this around, you know, just like, first of all, pick a a good market yep. that's growing. I mean, obviously account-based marketing has been a, a good thing to kind of pin our hat on. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, some people sort of say, Oh, you know, John, like John, I invented account-based marketing, which is clearly not true. Yeah. You know, but I absolutely think I, I, um, poured a lot of, you know, fuel on that fire. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, I think, uh, another, you know, thing is, you know, again, I didn't, I didn't invent account-based marketing, but I think in some ways I defined it for a lot of people. Um, so I helped to amplify the category, but by itself, it was a category that was happening. Um, and that's, so I didn't specifically was looking for that, Got it. you know, for something I, um, and as related to that, I wanted a product that there are buyers for, you know, I think one of the problems that the predictive companies have had is there's nobody in the marketing department sitting around you know, looking to buy predictive, mm-hmm. you know, um, you basically go and you build your model and you get your list of accounts and then you're like, great, thank you. I'm done. Um, cause there's, again, there's no kind of ongoing problem. There. Yeah. So anyways, the point is I, I, I learning from Marketo, I spent a fair amount of time thinking about the category and the space I wanted to be in, you know, obviously tried to build a good product and building a good execution, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm also doing a lot of things differently. You know, I think the biggest difference is that, 
at Marketo, we didn't spend, Phil and I didn't spend really any time in the early days thinking about culture. And we talked a lot about the product we wanted to build and nothing about the kind of company we wanted to build. Mm. And I think Marketo was successful despite that. You know, some companies are successful because of their culture. And sure. Marketo was successful despite of its culture. Um, so with Engage, I'm really trying to be much more intentional and deliberate about building the company and the culture as well as kind of the product that we're trying to and why is that important? Why is culture important? Yeah. Like what's, what's behind that? <laughs> well, you know, I think that you can think about, com- you know, this is from Patrick Lencioni. There, there are companies that are smart and there are companies that are healthy. And I think most executives spend most of their time um, on things related to being smart. Mm-hmm. What's our strategy? What's our product? What's our finance? Um Healthy are things like, you know, do we have good morale? Do we attract the right talent? Do we uh, have low turnover? Um, are our people aligned in terms of you know, working in the same direction? Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty obvious to most people when you describe it that way that a healthy company, you know, that's sort of average smart will probably win over like a super smart company that maybe is lacking in health. Yeah, well said. You know, and so I'm, you know, trying to have a company that's healthy and smart. Makes, makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned sort of the, the, the role of sort of the executives and thinking about healthy and smart. Um, one thing I'm really curious about, now that you're, obviously you're a founder, but, but you're, you're now in the CEO's seat, is there, do you see the marketing function or the sales function any differently than you did when you were a marketer? Yeah, yeah totally. I mean... I, I, I hate to say, I mean, I always, as a marketer, sort of rallied against like, oh, don't let marketing be a cost center and justify and defend your budget. Um, and I was the CEO, pretty much thinking about the budget. Marketing very clearly looks to me like a cost center. Yeah. Um, even though I understand the value of marketing. You know, when you got to find, you know, so, so that's interesting, just to have changing your perspective. Your, your bias. <laughs> you know, um, kind of makes that kind of eminently, eminently visible. Um, and, and, you know, on, on that note, like, I, I know uh, Marketo had, had some really good messaging around, you know, the RPM and kind of making marketing revenue driven. I think they, they kind of walked away from that more recently. Um, but I guess that that promise of, you know, revenue tied to marketing, I guess, what's been missing to, in, in the Marketo era to fulfill that? I don't think, you know, I mean, it's just, as you know, it's inherently a hard problem. You know, um, inherently, in order to tie marketing to revenue, you're making some assumptions, you know, along the way, whether it's your attribution model or, or what, you know, there's, sure. there's assumptions involved. You know, that's, you know, that's always harder. I mean, I always like to say it's really easy to see sales outcomes and hard to see sales activity, you know, kind of from the executive level. You don't really know what those salespeople are doing all day long, yeah. but you know if they close a the deal. Sure. I think the opposite is true for marketing. It's really hard to see marketing outcomes. Like, what am I really getting for this? But it's really easy to see marketing activity. You know, oh, we did this webinar, we did this event, we ran that campaign. Um, and I think that right there is just one of the key reasons why it's hard for marketing. Yeah, you it's know? a hard problem. That's why we're tackling it. But um, so one of the things that gets asked about ABM, it's come to this conference, 
Um, you know, is it is it really new? Uh, we've always always been doing target account selling. You know, so what's your opinion on that? Is it really new, or is it something putting a new name on something that's already existing? Well, I think there, there, there's two factors, right? I think there are a generation of people who've been around for a while, you know, who you know look at this and think it's not new yeah. because it's the same stuff we did ten years ago. Yeah. Uh, to target accounts. What's different is that it's um, tools like Engageo and others are, I think are enabling it to happen at much greater scale. You know, so you can do good account-based marketing manually to five or six accounts on a spreadsheet. Yeah. Right. But how do you do it to, you know, 40 tier one accounts and 300 tier two accounts and a thousand tier three accounts? Yeah. It's for expanding how much you personalization know. you can do. Yeah. To, to more exactly. Accounts. And that's the vision I've had since college, right, is, yeah. you know, I want the one-to-one future. I want every interaction to be personalized and more relevant at scale. And I think ABM is effectively trying to deliver it at scale. So I think it's it's not new to a set of people who've been around for a while, but it's just more scalable. I think there's a bunch of other marketers who grew up in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. who grew up in the world of inbound and demand gen and content. and Which might be most, most you know, of the, you know, middle certainly, marketers. Yeah, certainly most of the mid-level marketers. Um, and I think for them, like, oh, I can go outbound to target accounts in a targeted way. That is really new and different. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> it seems new and different to them. Yeah. Um, that's okay. I never thought of it that way in terms of the, the generational shift where it seems, it's, it seems brand new to a lot of people for, mm-hmm. for that reason. Um, so, you know, one thing, since you're, you're our first CEO guest, I'm really curious about, you know, you get, I'm sure, get asked for a lot of advice from investors or, or other CEOs. What do you think is the biggest misconception at a board or CEO level about marketing or specifically or go to market in general? I think one misconception um, that, that too many people, you know, have about marketing, you know, is around events. And I think that marketers spend you know, it's still probably the biggest portion. Events are still probably the biggest portion of the marketing budget for many, many companies. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly kind of one of the most visible and kind of most exciting, you know, things. I think that at least my experience, it's also probably one of the lower ROI things. You know, and you know, I'm sure you've got good data on this, mm-hmm. you know, across your clients, but you know, I think that uh, there's probably on margin a misconception of, you know, how valuable events are. And I've talked to a lot of marketers who look at the data and realize events aren't that great, mm-hmm. who then try to cut their event budget to put it into other higher performing channels. And then they get pressure from the board or from other people. It's like, uh, why aren't we at show XYZ? Yeah. You know, and uh, sales in particular just seems to, you know, like, oh, you know, our competitors are there. We need to be there. And that's hard for marketers to sort of defend against. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I always tell people is there, if there's value other than lead gen, that's great, right? You, sh- you should just do the event because it's for your existing customers. It's a CS interaction or it's, a, you know, it's more of a branding exercise or partner, you know, catching up with partners. Then you should carve out some of the event budget and maybe not subject to the ROI of, of a demand gen trigger. Um, I think that's so some of the people that say oh, we have to be at RSA or Dreamforce or whatever industry is. It's a lot about branding. Um, and I think there's there's some probably counterpoint to that. Yeah. 
I'm not sure that you just want to like, you know, that calling a branding is like a get out of jail free card for yeah, you having it not be measurable, but there has to be some metric somewhere. <laughs> There's absolutely great. So I, I want to wrap up with one last topic. Um, from the point of view, again, from the, from the CEO seat, as you structured your marketing team and just think of it, maybe through the end of this year, um, how, how have you built your team? Um, you know, where did you, maybe what, what sequence or what order or anything that might help someone else building a marketing team instead of startup? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, to me, it sort of starts with a high level philosophy on what is your, your view of how much you're going to invest in marketing, you know, and then answering that also in the context of how much are you going to invest in sales development? Yeah. You know, at Marketo, we spent for every dollar we spent in sales, we spend almost a dollar in marketing, you know, at Marketo. You know, so relatively pretty big investment uh, in the marketing budget. Um, and as a result, you know, marketing mar- at Marketo, marketing was driving a lot of the pipeline, you know, 80% or more of all the pipeline uh, that the sales team ultimately closed. You know, if you look at the industry average, you know, for every dollar in sales, marketing is somewhere between, you know, 30 cents to 50 cents. And does that include SDRs in the marketing side or the sales side? It's unclear, to be honest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think I think most of the time, no. You know, in at least for kind of the you know the rules of thumb I'm having here. So if marketing is 30 percent of the sales budget. You know, I don't think you should be expecting marketing to be delivering 80 percent or 90 percent of the pipeline. Um, it's it's a lot less. You know, maybe it's more like 20 or 30 percent. Mm-hmm. You know, of the pipeline. Um. And so then you got to figure out, okay, well, where does the rest of the pipeline going to come from? You know, if it's not inbound through marketing, then what's going to come from outbound uh, sales development? What's going to come from partners? What's going to come from our sales team prospecting? So I almost think you need to have a, and there's no one right answer, right? I mean, ultimately you need to get a CAC ratio that's acceptable to you and your investors, but you know, there's many paths to a CAC ratio of one. Um, so for Engageo, I've sort of landed that the marketing budget should be about 50 cents on the dollar, you know, to the sales budget, um, of which I then sort of think about, well, how does that split out between programs and people? And, you know, big companies, the ratio tends to be about two thirds to one third programs to people. I think that's a bad ratio for small companies, which tend to be, have less big budget for big programs mm-hmm. and need to do more scrappy things, you know? And so again, I'm sort of more 50, 50 sure, yeah. between programs and people. And so that gives me an envelope for like, okay, this is the amount of budget I have to spend on hiring people. You know, as my sales team grows, you know, my, my marketing team grows roughly about a quarter as fast. Yeah. Uh, about, about a quarter of that. I think it's a great observation. I think one of my takeaways has been as a CEO, it's, it is top down, right? There is a financial plan and the numbers have to make sense in the CAC. Uh, and you of course ask your team, you know, what they want to do, but it's, it's all got to make sense. Um, so that was as a marketer, I, I wouldn't have said the same thing. Um, but uh, well, well, great. So I really enjoyed the conversation. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Great. Thank you. You're welcome.